0: Alright, so we will, we're going to pick back up this week uh, with this idea of don't play church, be the church. You know, last week we looked at um, at Legos, a very popular toy, and, and how the representation that we have there is that the Legos connect together and as Christians we are to be connecting relationships, connect with God, with each other in our community. Um, today I want to Continue that thought as we look at this idea of transforming communities. Um, last week I, I, read a, I read a passage to you out of Acts chapter 2. and We consider this the foundation of the New Testament church. This is what an authentic church looks like. And I want to read it to you again just to remind you of where we are. Now when they had heard this and what, what it's referring to, excuse me, uh, Peter has just preached a message and, and thousands have responded to it. And in 2.42 it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So they were connecting relationships, right? And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day who were being saved. And so if we're to talk about an authentic church, we see that they are connecting them relationships. Um, We also find that an authentic church is transforming their community. And so if we're to be an authentic church, what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to transform our community? How are we to be transforming communities you know, the uh, early church, as they connected to God, people began to see something special about them. They began to see God in a new light. These Old Testament beliefs began to kind of see the fulfillment of them in this New Testament church, and God began to do some incredible things, and, and through that, we saw the transformation that took place. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you this morning for your grace, your mercy, God, for this beautiful experience we had in worship. God, is. As we come closer and closer to your throne, we see just how vile we are. God, this morning, as we see ourselves in the light of grace, help us to be a transforming church. God, this morning, let your anointing flow. God, speak directly into each one of our lives. Challenge us in our walk. Encourage us in our perseverance. And God, continue to mold us into who you've called us to be. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to talk to you about something unique. Uh, In 1984, we were introduced to a toy called Transformers. And some of you may remember this coming to light, right? Uh, Prior to this, there was things similar to it, but nothing hit the scene like Transformers did, right? And so what's amazing is uh, Transformers look like something, but they change into something else, right? And that's the cool thing about them. Uh, It took me 10 minutes to make this thing look like it's supposed to. So we'll see if it works that way. But it transforms into something incredible and And before long. Anyhow, yeah, my kids had to put it together for me initially. Anyhow, so what looks like a car becomes somewhat of a robot, somewhat. Uh, This is a knockoff, some cheap, there we go. So what happens when you buy the Walmart version of a Transformer? authentic. Right, so Transformers came to be. 1984, we had Transformers come on the scene, right? And Transformers is like the third top-selling toy in the history of toys. I mean, they are top level. Number one is the Barbie. I think number two might be like Silly Putty. And number three is, is Transformers. And so when Transformers came, what was amazing for kids was they had two toys in one. They had this figure that they could play with, but they can convert it and it could be a car or whatever form it came in. And kids love that, right? And then in the 90s, we had this reintroduction to it through the form of cartoons and comic books. And, And now you have this billions and billions and billions of dollars industry through a toy that comes in as one thing and then transforms into something else. When I was thinking about what does it mean to transform a community, Uh, I was thinking about this concept of the church that as Christians we come into a community kind of embracing a culture. But it's our calling from God to then transform ourselves but also to be transformative to other people. As God takes something that looks a certain way it begins to do something unique with it. I want to give you an example of that in the early church. This is in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read the first 9 verses there, um, the early church did something very, really kind of encouraging uh, for us to read about. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and, and, not, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set, out the, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. You catch that? Transforming communities. These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so to set the scene for you, uh, on Wednesday nights we're doing a study of Philippi. So after Paul left Philippi on his second missionary journey, he, he journeyed into Thess- Thessalonica which is where we have the letters to the, this church of First and Second Thessalonians. And, and so Paul comes in, and as was his tradition, as he would do, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And for three Sabbaths in a row, Paul stood before all the Jewish people and began to preach to them about Jesus. And he began to take Old Testament scriptures and go, this person that is the Christ, that's Jesus. And as he began to preach this message to them, the Jewish people, some of the ones who were devout, began to get kind of angry with him. And so as they were trying to devise a plan to capture Paul and Silas, as they continuously tried to do, they decided to get some men in this rabble, this mob that they're talking about, or some of the outlying people, and they began to get them and, and more than likely paid them and said, we need you to start a riot. And so what happened in that city was a riot broke out. And so when these officials came and began to break, this rabble, uh, break up this riot, the Jewish people go into Jason's house and they go, I know Paul and Silas, and we're going to drag them out and we're going to say they're the reason for this riot. And when we do that, they're going to kill Paul and Silas and we're going to be done with all this. And so they go and they only find Jason in his house Where so they drag him out before, the, Jewish, uh, before the, the Romans there and they begin to lay out to him why these people deserve to die. Undoubtedly, the authorities of that time knew what this plan was, and, and so they didn't do any punishment to Jason other than making him pay his bail money to go back home. But what we find is they make the statement that every church wishes to be made about them. They turn the world upside down, and they have come here also. I love that because what we see pictured in this description that Luke writes is that Paul and Silas must have been setting ablaze the communities they were going through, right? Uh, They just came through Philippi. We know what all happened in Philippi As God transformed that community. The verse that Kim was reading about Paul and Silas in jail and how God broke them free in the middle of the night, that happened in Philippi. And so all of this has probably made its way now down further. And now that they're in Thessalonica, which is probably about 40 miles from Philippi, as they're there in this major city of the Macedonia area, they begin to set this place on fire too for Christ. And not only are Jews beginning to be transformed, but even some of the Greeks and the Gentiles that are there, they begin to be transformed. And this upsets the Jewish people and they say, these men are turning the world upside down. Basically saying, these men are transforming their communities and we don't want that to happen any longer. The transforming communities poses a threat and they didn't like it. And so, so the question that we ask from this new church, this question we ask about what does it mean to be an authentic church, centers around this, how do we become transformers of communities like an authentic church? If you want to know what a real church looks like, look no further than the communities that they're in. Are they transforming that community? And if not, what do they have to do to become the transformers of that community? I want to talk to you about three different things that I think play into this transforming communities. It's three of the five senses that all of us have, okay? Three of the five senses that we have. First, to be a transformative church to play our role in a transformative church, we find that we must taste like salt. We must taste... Now, I'm not saying be salty, all right? That's the opposite of what I'm telling you to do. What I'm saying is you have to taste like salt, right? uh, Jesus does this beautiful sermon, and he begins to preach what we call the Beatitudes. And In Matthew 5, 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the refrigeration back then didn't really exist. And so to preserve things, salt was the method that they used. And so if you had meat, you rubbed salt all over it to preserve the meat. Salt also was very similar to how we use salt. It would be used to season things, to make it taste better, to make it have some kind of appeal to you if it didn't even have an appeal at all to you. But what would happen is is they would get salt from certain areas, but what could be mixed in with the salt is some minerals that didn't have a salty flavor, didn't have the same uh, kind of the same formula that salt does. And so if you were to take those mixed together that all look like salt and you rubbed it on the meat, what would happen is you would actually lose the meat. It would spoil because it would dilute the salt and it wouldn't work. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is is, is is to make sure you examine yourself and realize that, Everything that's within you is genuine. Because if it's not genuine, it's not going to serve the purpose that you needed to serve. And if you were to discover that the saltiness that you thought you had wasn't there, that you're to toss it in the road. right? Because they wouldn't toss it in a garden, it would kill the plants. They would toss it in the road and people would trample upon it. And so Jesus is trying to relate to them, hey, this is what you do with salt. We as transformers of our community... We identify a need and then we preserve the reality of Christ, right? If I had salt on that time, I would look at my meat and go, well, the need right here is that I need to preserve this so I can enjoy it at a later date. And so therefore I would apply the salt to it. As Christians, we look at our community and we go, what's the need? And then how can I provide the salt or how do I provide for this to preserve the reality of Christ? Now, sometimes living in the South, we can have kind of a distorted view of what we think our community looks like. But hopefully you know that our community is struggling, right? Over 50% of the people in Holmes County do not claim any relationship with Christ. That's not counting those who claim other things outside of Christianity. That would have, you would have never thought that even 10 years ago. And now when we examine our community, we find that it's no longer a pro-Christian community, it's now a pro-not-Christian. When we look at the struggle that we have, I was looking at some of the struggles with drug and alcohol abuse, and I saw a number that said that one-third of our community, our county, admits to having some kind of struggle with drug and alcohol abuse. It's incredible to think if you work in Holmes County, you could almost look at the people in your room and go one out of three of these people is struggling with alcohol or substance abuse. It's a a terrible thing to realize. If you just keep up with all the arrests that our sheriff's department is making, you'll see that they are continuously arresting people from crystal meth use and, and other drugs. And they're, and they're finding people transporting it into our community and taking it out of our community. And as a church, it's our responsibility to identify a need there. But it doesn't stop. If we're to be transformers of our communities... If we're a church that Christ is placed in here as the vehicle he's going to use to transform our community, it goes beyond that. The problem exists. It's our job to, pers- to preserve the reality of Christ. Paul would walk into a community. He would go, the biggest issue this community faces is the religious people. And so I'm going to go there and be the salt of that. And Paul would walk into a synagogue, and as many Saturdays as they would let him preach in a row, he would get up there and preach. I just want to tell you guys one thing. Isaiah said this right here, and who he's talking about is the Christ. And obviously the Christ is Jesus, and people hated that because Jesus was still viewed by the Jews as someone who was a rebellious person against the culture, hated God, a heretic person. Even the Romans viewed him as someone who claimed to be a king, and he wasn't. I mean, that was treason of the highest regard. And so for Paul to walk in and go, this is the need and this is the reality of what you're facing, it didn't sit well with people. But when he would go places, they would go, here's this man who's turning the world upside down. As Christians, the taste that we put off is a taste of salt. It's that we walk into our community and go, there's the problem now. How do I apply my life to that problem? As a church, we come together and go, all right, there's the issue. Now, how do we apply ourselves to that issue? You know, we spent some time talking about our missions, and and some of you probably know this and some of you don't, but we really did kind of a missional shift of our church. Uh, I'm a a big fan of overseas missions, but I also look at the reality of our community and go, well, we have to do something here too. Uh, God has called us here. And so 8% of everything that comes into our church goes right back into our community. And so some of the things that we're doing to address needs is, is as I mentioned about the nursing home and trying to look at the need of, of, of companionship, the, the monetary need, the physical need of some of the residents there, some of them without any family that visits them and go, well, God, what have you called us to do here? Because Jesus very plainly says, whatever you do to the least of these You do to me. And so what he's saying is, identify the least of these. Now the salt of who you are perseveres, I mean, excuse me, um, preserves the reality of who I am. So we looked at that and we go, that's what we need to do. And and we look at the poverty level, which is astronomical in our community, right? I mean, some say that it gets close to 50%, but I will tell you it's definitely in the 30% range of poverty uh, that fall below the poverty line in our community. So as a church, what do we do? Because, I mean, we, we, we can't financially give to it, but, but what do we do to meet the need? And so, so we identify a sect of the population that we feel like we can come in and help, and that's children. And so we are in the formulation now of, of putting together how do we provide food items over the weekend for kids who are at that poverty level or below it beyond their own control? How, how, do, we, how do we address that? incarceration in our communities is incredible Holmes County in 2015 had 81 people get sent to prison and you may go that's not a lot but the numbers in comparison to the per capita in the state put us at four times more than most count, most counties 81 people is a lot when you think of how small our community is incarceration is a real thing and that's not even counting the people that go to jail for crimes that they get released from and so as a church how do we address that? And so we're in the process of addressing that. What I'm telling you is, as a church, we look at our community, we identify the problem, and we go, how do we preserve Christ, the reality of who He is? Because we, we sang Chain Breaker, and we sang, um, we sang all these songs this morning about this bondage of sin in our lives, and, and when you reach rock bottom, you realize that there's only one solution to it, and it's Jesus. I mean, you can go to all the programs you want, and programs are phenomenal, but until you have a transformed life, you'll never have a transformed reality of how you live. And so it's our responsibility, it's our job, it's a mandate from Christ that we identify needs and then we go address them. And so as a church, we have to do that because we're the salt. We're the thing that seasons this hopeless outlook of life when when I look at the situation some people are in I go there's no hope here right like the taste doesn't taste right to me but Christ said that that's not your responsibility to determine if hope is there or not it's your responsibility to season it with the gospel and that's what we do we're the seasoning in a hopeless situation in your work, when people are going, I don't know what we're going to do now that North Korea has some missile that they can attack us with. I don't know what we're going to do with the floodwaters rising in Texas. I don't know what we're going to do when it seems like cops are constantly either abusing it or being taken advantage of for their positions. I mean, we can't trust anybody anymore, the media. Like, when you're at work and you hear people talk about all the struggles in the world, it's our job as a Christian to be the salt in that situation. To go, I know it seems hopeless. But let me tell you what hope looks like. And hope is found in the embodiment of Christ, the reality of who he is. As he transformed us, we expect him to transform our community. And so we are to taste like salt. Second, we're to look like light. And so we taste, we see. Jesus continues in that parable, I mean, excuse me, in the Beatitudes. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It doesn't need a lot of explaining. We understand this pretty clearly. Jesus says nobody lights a lamp and then just puts a basket over it. I mean, it defeats the purpose of lighting the lamp. It's our job when Christ lights us up, when he saves us, that we're to illuminate the things that are surrounding us. <clears throat> the concept of it is kind of a no-brainer, but we shine a light on the redemptive work of the cross. I don't know if you have ever experienced this, but our transition from light into darkness is not a very tough thing. If you've ever went to a movie theater, walking uh, from the lobby into the theater, our eyes can adjust really quickly, right? Right? Being transformed into darkness is not a hard thing. Uh, it's our natural disposition to want to do bad things. We're just born with that reality. But when you walk out of the movie theater, I don't know if you're like this, but when I walk out, like I can't see for like ten minutes. I'm walking to my car as if I was Paul on the road to Damascus, and Christ is giving me, and, I'm, and I can't see. When we come to that conclusion. That it's so much easier for people to be in darkness than light. It makes us more effective of being light. Like I understand that people want to do bad. We did a whole series on the sabotage of sin. The natural disposition of people is to want to do bad things. That was the whole intent of sin. Sin was brought in to discourage us from following God. And therefore now all of us struggle with it. We were born with a natural, uh, natural sin desire in our hearts. And so when we look at our community, we look at the people around us, we come to the realization that it's so much easier for them to do the bad things. There's no, it's clear to us why one third struggles with some sort of substance abuse. It's because it's easier. I can cope with things easier if I have something to assist me. I can understand why crime is rising in our community. It's just easier to take things than it is to work for things. And as a Christian, when we come to that understanding and realize that God has called us, even in those moments, to illuminate himself through there, it'll make us a transformative church. Paul and Silas walked into a community. They said, lights on, here's what the struggle is. And as people began to see it, people got upset. When the Jews saw that they had missed Christ, They didn't go, please forgive me for that. They said, he's a liar. He's a lunatic. Lock him up. Throw away the key. Kill him. That's even better. When we begin to illuminate problems in our communities and we illuminate problems within our culture, we begin to see that people get a little upset about it. And the next thing you know, you turn on the news and they're going, this Christian group is a hate group. We're like, no, we're just shining the light on the reality of what's taking place. Just because I can't say certain words, that makes me a, hate, a person filled with hate. But it's the reality of any time light is shown on darkness, that people see the realization of who they are. And instead of accepting it, they rebel against it. If you've ever kind of confronted somebody in love about a problem, you'll see that their natural reaction is to be defensive. We saw that in the garden. When God came to Adam and Eve, their natural reaction was, it wasn't me, it was her. It wasn't me, it was him. And they began to point the fingers because when we see the struggle and the sin in our life, we go, that's not me, it's somebody else. But God has called us to not only identify the problem and apply the salt of our life to it, but He also said, illuminate it. It's going to bring opposition against you, but if you're going to transform your community, if you're going to be an authentic church it means that you have to be willing to shine the light. As children of the light, it's the expectation of who we are. We taste like salt. We look like light. And lastly, we smell like Christ. In 2 Corinthians two fifteen and 16, Paul writes, For we are the aroma of Christ. Amen. To God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death. And to other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When I was kind of studying this verse out, because that's a, a unique statement that Paul makes, that we are the aroma of Christ to God. We are uh, the smell of, of Christ to God. When I read this, uh, remember in the context that Paul is writing in, uh, I read some commentary where it said that the Romans... They made sure that everyone knew when they were victorious because they would burn incense all over the city. And as you walked into the city, immediately you smelled a victory. Like you would walk into a Roman city, you would go, they must have won a battle today. So that aroma was pleasing for the victors. But for the prisoners, the ones that they had taken captive in victory, That smell meant to them certain death. What a perspective, right? When you're the transformed one, it smells like victory. When you're the perishing one, it smells like imminent death. Over and over again, well actually 18 times we read in the the book of Leviticus about how God enjoyed the smell of the sacrifice. Because... Even though if you've ever smelled burning flesh, it's not a smell that you enjoy. But for God, it was the praises of His people, and He enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, we re- read in the book of Revelation how these incense that were, were lit around the throne of God, and He would uh, smell that aroma, and it would be the prayer of the saints. And God just would, en- would enjoy that smell, that aroma. As Christians, as a church... There should be an aroma that flows out of this place that lets the whole world know that we are Christ to your hopeless situation. That we are what victory looks like when struggles come. And to those who are perishing, unfortunately the smell that we give off is that death is coming unless you're willing to conform to what God has called you to do. We as a church should be able to have people come to us and go, I was in Doc's Market the other day, and I noticed a change in people, and it just had the aroma of Gully Springs on it. Like, that should be what people say. They should go, man, I was at the sheriff's department the other day, and there was somebody getting out of jail, and they had a bag in their hand, and and it it was just the aroma of Gully Springs all over it. At the nursing home, when people go and visit their families and they see them carrying some little trinket that we had, had given there that seemed like nothing to us, they come to us and go, I don't know what it is, but there's an aroma of Gully Springs in this place. The ideal that Paul was given off is everywhere you should go should be this aroma that follows you, that people want to be transformed. And if they don't want to be transformed, they try to run from it because it convicts them of the sin in their life. God enjoyed that aroma. And what Paul is saying is, God wants to enjoy His church. He wants you out working in your communities and transforming them. Because when you become a transformative church, and people say they're turning the world upside down, that aroma goes up into heaven, and God just smells it with pride, and He goes, that's what the church is all about. That's what an authentic church looks like. One that people say great things about. People look at them and they go, there's just something different about them. There's a smell about them. There's, a, there, there's a, a victorious attitude about them that just has me wanting to gravitate to them. I want to be a part of what they have going on. We are to transform communities. How do we do it? We illuminate the problem. We preserve Christ in the issue. And when we leave that struggle, we leave an aroma of victory behind. Where people go, I don't know, but i got to be a part of what God is doing through this church. At the end of Acts chapter 2, we read about their connecting relationships at the beginning. We read about the transformation that's happening in the community. And there was such an aroma about this church that we read from Luke in the very last verse, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Transformative church. Taste like salt. Look like light. Smell like Christ. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for the call of a church that you've placed in our lives. God, for the incredible burden that you've placed upon our church. Lord, let our hearts continue to be moved in that direction. God, you have equipped and called us to do incredible work. Help us to be the transformative church you've called us to be. God, help us to taste like salt, look like light, and have an aroma of Christ. This morning, as you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to I issue a challenge to you. If you're here this morning and you go, I can't have this transformation in my community because I need transformation in my life first the most important thing you can do. You may be here this morning and be at rock bottom, but I'm telling you, you may go, I'm bound to what I'm struggling with, but I want to remind you that God is a chain-breaking God. And this morning, if you want to experience transformation, then I want to invite you up front and let me lead you to a transformative God who will look at your life and all your struggles and go, that's okay, I can fix that. Who will look at all the fears and the doubts that you face and go, that's okay, I can overcome that who will look at everything that you've ever been in your past and go, that's okay, I forgave that. He wants to transform your life. He wants you to be like salt, to be like light, and to have an aroma of who He is. This morning, as, as the worship team plays, I'll be standing up front, and, and if you feel that or you know that you need to come forward for that transformational God, I'll be standing up there to lead you to the foot of the throne of God. Thank mm-hmm. you.